This is Subconscious Mind Mastery Podcast number five. Meet my friend, Dr. David Slater. Welcome back. My name is Thomas Miller. Thank you for joining us here on SubconsciousMindMasteryPodcast.com. You know, through the course of your life, there are certain intersections where you meet people that, yeah, you just influence you and you click and you become really good friends. About five years ago, I met a guy by the name of Dr. David Slater. We met at a seminar that we were attending mutually. And from that time on, it just something clicked and we've become really good friends, collaborated on several projects. He is redesigning his website now and is launching some of the same things that we're doing here. And I wanted you to meet him. Good morning, David. Good morning, Thomas. You have a really interesting story that I wanted the people who are subscribing to this website to hear because not only once but twice, you shifted your life 180 degrees. And so let's jump right in and start telling them about the first part of the story, which takes you, I guess, where you want to begin all the way back to your college days. Yeah, and everybody knows the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And sadly, my uh, my college years were too interesting for, for me. Um, everything went well the first year, all was good, started the second year, sophomore year, and I've been kind of a, a thrill seeker and adventurer my whole life, and I always had dreamed about going skydiving, and I talked about it and read about it, and there was even a movie that came out late 1960s called The Gypsy Moths. It had Burt Lancaster and a couple other people, and it was about skydiving. One of the guys got killed, nevertheless. Anything about skydiving was fascinating. So, in October of 1977, my, my sophomore year at Texas A&M, um, I signed up for skydiving lessons, and I didn't tell anybody in my family or friends or girlfriend. I didn't tell anybody I was going to do it. I didn't want to be, you know, pressured by the knowing they knew that I was going to go. I wanted the ability to back out if I changed my mind. And back then, the it was kind of new uh, sport. Uh, they didn't jump with the square shoots; they jumped with the the round ones, and it was they're all static line jumps. So you jump by yourself, but uh, you know you're attached to the you didn't pull your own chute. You just jumped out. And so that's what I did. Well, they gave us the lessons about, you know, how to hit the ground, how to roll, how to do this. It's pretty simple stuff. And and they tested the direction of the wind speed. And, and that was before lunch. And then things got delayed. We had a late lunch and went up uh, about two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon and wound our way up to altitude, about 2,500 feet. And the first girl jumped out and we swung around. We could see her chute open and plane came around for a second pass and the next guy jumped out and all went well and swung around i was the third of three to jump out and i jumped out and pretty scary about 150 foot free fall i suppose till the chute deploys and thump the chutes open perfectly and i could see the canopy above me and the ground a couple of thousand feet below me well i could also see the airfield which was huge in the distance getting smaller and I was facing towards it, but I was blowing away from it. Unbeknownst to any of us, the wind had changed direction from before lunch to uh, six miles an hour towards the airfield had changed to 30 miles an hour away from the airfield. And so I was blowing away from the airfield and towards uh, towards suburbia, uh, houses and trees and, and barbed wire fences and power lines. And uh, the whole time that I was 
basically blowing along there, I thought, this is bad. I'm going to get tangled up in trees or, or, you know, something like that on my first jump. And I thought, interestingly enough, how embarrassing that would be. Always amazing, and we'll talk about this later, but always amazing that one of the big driving forces we have is our fear of what other people think of what we're up to. Um, the reason I didn't tell anyone I was going. I was afraid of what they'd say if I changed my mind. So as I got closer and closer to the ground, I also could see that there were these poles sticking up about, uh, well, hundreds of yards away from where I was, but where I was headed, and they were power lines. Um, those The two lines that run into residential areas carry about 7,200 volts and uh, pretty good amperage. I didn't think that I would get... Uh, electrocuted or injured by it but I thought you know between my height and the height of the risers going up to the parachute uh, I stand about 55 feet tall and I'm probably going to get tangled on those things so as I would aim away from them it would slow my speed and if I aimed towards them it looked like I would go over them make a long story short the wind was changing speed sometimes it was gusting to 30 sometimes it was not and uh, I made a run for it, and I could see in the last several seconds I was going to hit him, and I did. I hit the uh, the one line right across my chest. My arms were up on the uh, uh, the risers, so it hit me straight on the chest at about 20 miles an hour or so. And then I hit the second line and grounded the connection. Um, and at that point, you know, all hell broke loose. It's 7,200 volts. 43 amps is what they told me later. I never checked into it. I suppose that was true. But uh, I got electrified, and it's extremely loud and beyond beyond painful because, you know, I was on fire and being, you know, electrically shocked. So just as the electricity was going into my chest and out my legs, blue-white arcing electricity, people came running out of their houses and were screaming. They were, you know, 35 feet below me down on the ground and yelling, and nobody knew what to do. I didn't pass out. Two, three seconds into it, I, of course, was well aware how much trouble I was in, and uh, I also knew I'm probably not going to survive this. I thought, you know, it's going to be sad for my parents and my brother and sister and girlfriend and roommates, and everybody's going to get the big phone call, but there's nothing that I can do. And and it really hurt. I mean, that was astonishingly painful. Five seconds, ten seconds. And, you know, each second is an eternity. Well, speaking of eternities, I might not have been smart enough to stay in a perfectly good airplane, but I was smart enough to accept that, you know, I wasn't going to survive this. So I began to look for a tunnel of light or trumpets. I don't know why trumpets, but I thought I would get a, a ceremonious send-off. But I was literally looking up at the sky, uh, thinking that the skies would part, and that I would get some type of transitional event between where I was and and you know where I would be going. And I've often joked I must have had a good clean living at that time because I was not worried about shadows pawing my ankles from the ground. Uh, but I was thinking that I would get a you know a tunnel of light. Well. That didn't show up. So after five seconds, then 10 seconds, and 15 seconds, and of course at this point, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on fire the whole time and being electrocuted. And I'm thinking, you know, at what point do you pass out? I mean, how much pain can a person possibly take? At about 15 seconds or so, there's kind of a, 
blurriness to my vision. And then all of a sudden, I could see me from about 20 feet away, 25 feet away. Um, I'm floating, you know, in the air, typical, a typical out-of-body experience, as they say. And I could see me on the power lines burning and twitching. And the sensation was uh, certainly no pain or, or anything like that. But, you know, I'm not in pain right now. And I'm sure most of you all are not in pain right now. It's not that remarkable. But this was different. This was like having all of my questions answered, everything finished, nowhere to go, no appointments, nothing to do, and everything nicely wrapped up, like the end of a really long book. And I thought, ooh, that's, this is it. And then all of a sudden, no voice, no additional vision, but an instantaneous, very powerful and strong understanding that either we go or you stay. And if you stay, you'll make a full recovery. And if we go, we go now. And I didn't hear anything. I just knew it. I just understood it. And I thought, okay, this is dying. Um, and I will accept. I will accept the offer for a complete recovery, because if this is dying, this is pretty easy. Because you just like check out. So I'll go with the full recovery. Instantaneously, I was back into my body, and the pain returned full force. And then I flipped off the power lines and fell some 38 feet to the ground in front of the crowd of screaming people. I still didn't pass out. I was lying on the ground, and uh, they came running up to me to try to, you know, put out the smoldering fire. Um, And they apparently had called the ambulance already, but they loaded me in the back of uh, of the car and took me to meet the ambulance to speed the trip up, and then it was off to the hospital. Again, I'm still awake, uh, although I could only whisper because the muscles were so tightened up. And I got to the emergency room, and it's typical emergency room pandemonium and screaming. And I was relaxed, but in a lot of pain. And the priest came in to do last rites, which is kind of the Catholic version of how long have you lived and don't include tomorrow. It's just in Latin, so it's pretty nice. And I told the priest, you know, I said, I'm going to survive this. I got a deal. I said, but it... There was no religiously significant event. And this is while they're cutting off my clothes and doing all those things. And I said, you know, I'll see you tomorrow when I get out of surgery, but we need to talk. And I told everybody, you know, the phone numbers that they needed for parents and brother and roommate and sister and all that. And then they put me to sleep and I guess off to the operating room. Well, I woke up the next day in the emergency or in the intensive care unit and The priest was back in there because they thought I was going to die, you know, like they knew. And I told him what had happened and about the out-of-body experience and all that. And he said, well, David, he said, you you said there wasn't a religiously significant event. I said, yeah, that's right. He goes, well, where did you get this choice as to whether or not, you know, you would live or die? I was like, what do you mean? You know, because I've been busy since yesterday. He said, well, did you give yourself the choice? And I said, no. He said, you didn't see or hear anything other than, you know, seeing you. I go, no, that was it. He goes, but you got a choice. And I'm like, oh, yeah, big time, full on. I mean, the greatest level of understanding a person could possibly have. He said, where did that come from? And I thought, uh, I hadn't thought about it. This is pretty interesting. Over the years, um, I've thought about that. And I thought, you know, had I ever actually seen a tunnel of light or something interesting like that, I probably would have written it off as the product of a prepared mind. I would have written it off as saying, well, I saw exactly what I expected to see. 
this routine of getting some kind of choice that I would live, and if I lived, I would make a full recovery, turned out to be both a blessing and a curse. I spent the next couple of weeks in intensive care, and and then it was off to Parkland Hospital in Dallas to the uh, their very famous burn unit where I lived for months. And about two months after being there, the neurology team came in, and the whole crew, you know, 12 of them came in and kind of in a somber look. And this is after, uh, you know, uh, every day. I mean, the burn units back in the 70s are not exactly what they are today. Today, they would have just kept me asleep for two months. Back then, it's full-blown screaming pain off to the scrub tank and all of that stuff with very, very little to no pain medication. It would be considered a it actually be considered a crime by today's standards because uh, the leaving somebody in that much pain is a lot has changed they don't do that now I still wasn't walking and I could barely feed myself and uh, the crew came in and they said David we've got some bad news and some worse news and I said well okay <laughs> what's the bad news they said the bad news is you're not going to walk again it's been a couple of months your legs don't work and you know this isn't a spinal cord shock this is spinal cord damage you're done and I said, okay, and what's the worst news? And they said, the worst news is we have to amputate your left arm. It doesn't work too well, and we're planning on taking it off tomorrow morning. And I didn't accept that as being, you know, a real thing. I had a deal. I had a deal where I recover. And I turned to him and I said, look, you guys are doing the best you can, but let me explain how it's going to be. My arm will magically be fine by morning. And I turned to the TV. There was, there was a TV was on. And this was now December of 1977, and Steven Spielberg had come out with this new movie called Close Encounters back in uh, November 17th, 1977. And so they're still running ads for it, and there was an advertisement on TV, and it showed a Devil's Tower, a flat-topped, kind of unusual-shaped mountain or whatever you want to call it in northeast Wyoming. And I pointed to the TV, and I said, not only am I going to be able to walk again and that my arm will be fine in the morning, but I'm going to climb to the top of that. And they looked at me, and they just nodded their heads, and they said, yeah, yeah, okay, you bet, you bet, David. And they walked out. And, of course, about two hours later, the uh, psychiatrist came in. and Hi, David, how are you? Well, denial's not just a river in Egypt. And so began to explain to me that I was going to have to understand a little bit better about what was really going on. Over the next uh, couple of months, I was able to get up on my feet a bit more, and uh, eventually I came home, and uh, I spent the next seven years essentially suffering the effects of the skydiving accident. I had multiple, multiple surgeries, I think 25 in total. Um, I spent years in physical therapy. I did go back to college the following year, but um, as a with my handicap parking sticker, uh, which gives you great parking, but it's still not a great deal. And um, eventually I went from a walker to a cane, and then eventually I got rid of the cane, but the, the medical term is called hyperreflexia and ataxia. It's where you bounce and jiggle, and you better be hanging on while you're walking because you got a decent chance of falling over. But I was really tired of, of having the cane. But I got better. I got better every month. I improved every month. And I can honestly tell you that at no point throughout any of this recovery, with all of the trips to physical therapy, with all of the uh, muted enthusiasm for getting better, with all of that, 
I never once experienced the fear that I would be that I would be handicapped. Even in my dreams, it was almost two years before I couldn't walk in my dreams. Couldn't walk in real life. But when I went to sleep at night, I was still running and jumping and playing sports in my dreams. And then I'd wake up and like, oh, guess that's not the case. It, it took about two years for my dreams to catch up with me. Over that time period, I switched my major to finance. I had no hope anymore of going to medical school. Um, I'm sure there's a pathway for doctors who are handicapped, but... I never looked into it. I thought there's just no way. I don't have the I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy to do this kind of stuff. And so eventually I graduated and and went off into the business world although with hopes of returning to becoming a doctor. And as the months and eventually years went by, um it looked like more and more of a possibility. So I did return to go to medical school, but that was not until I was 30. What an incredible story. And the cliffhanger that I'm still wanting to hear is when you climbed Devil's Tower. Well, that's something that we'll have to talk about. That sounds like a great place to stop for this podcast. <laughs> Very good. All right, now look, this is podcasts and we're not going to make people wait for a long time. I will release these in a sequel, so we'll get them all out so that you're not left. Podcasting is all about on-demand listening, so we'll make sure that you have the whole sequence so that you're not left with an incomplete story here. Dr. David Dr. David Slater from yes. Irving, Texas, from Tiena Health is the name of the clinic, T I E N A Health if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and especially in the Mid-Cities part and you need a great doctor, go look him up over there. Tell them uh, your website as well. My personal website is drdavidslater.com. And um I'm board certified in uh in family medicine although most of my patients are between uh well they're adults 20 30 40 50 60 that's what I concentrate on. Now you were telling and, uh, me that you were reworking the website. Yeah, reworking it and uh we're going to have lots of lots of things on there and as you know I'm uh you know uh, writing a book and we'll be doing a lot of things and I am available for speaking engagements. Absolutely. drdavidslater.com Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll pick the story up on the way to Devil's Tower next on Subliminal Mind Master. The opinions on this podcast are those of the host based on personal experience only and are not intended as medical or psychological advice. If you are experiencing symptoms that require professional treatment, please contact a licensed medical practitioner. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate.